On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Emerging technologies are transforming the healthcare industry as we know it. Investors, say hello to HTech, a portfolio dedicated to capturing the significant growth potential of healthcare innovation. Learn more at roboglobal.com/htec. This is Innovation and Leadership where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits, specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really... Uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let them become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Jane thanks for making time. Thank you, Jessica. So um, I think you've got a fun story kind of the unlikely entrepreneur story. Um, can we talk a little bit about where you started before you end up, you know, growing these big businesses you sold to National Insurance, Blue Cross, Blue Shield? Sure, sure. Just want me to go back to, okay. So I, I, I started working, you, we're talking my career right now, right? Okay. I started working for a dental insurance company when I was going to college, and it was simply a job that was close to my college that allowed me to work and go to school at the same time. So I'd go to work, race to class, race back to work. And so I, it was very, very flexible. And, and I worked for that company until I graduated. And when I graduated, my boss said, what would you like for your graduation present? And I said, I'd like to start my own company. And so he was just opening up operations in Bismarck, North Dakota. We were in Southern California. Nobody else volunteered to go. So... That was my big break, so I went to North Dakota. And um, can you talk about, you know, why you why you needed to start a business and the whole genesis of being widowed and okay, so providing for a two year old and okay, so so that's where that's where I got my skill. I is I started working for a, a company while I was going to college. Started as a receptionist and then moved around with the, with them a little bit, and they moved me to Utah ultimately. Met my husband my first day in town, continued to work for this company, and then very unexpectedly my husband uh, was diagnosed with advanced stage bone and lung cancer, and uh, eight months later he passed away. So now I find myself a single mom, I'm the sole provider of a two-year-old son, and I stayed with the company for another three years, 
until I realized that the company no longer supported our goals, our dreams, and our visions. And it was a great company. It was promoting me. They were expanding my territory, but it no longer supported me being a present engaged mom. It no longer supported the dreams that we'd shared as a family. And so it meant time to make a decision. It was kind of the only thing I thought I knew how to do. So I decided to quit and start my own company. And dental insurance was it. And how many companies did you end up with altogether? Ended up building four before it was all said and done. So we had, uh, two dental insurance companies, one in Utah, one in Arizona, and then two service companies. That's great. So uh, how many years from starting those businesses before you, uh, you know, built your multi-million dollar business that you sold to the multi-billion dollar business? Yeah, so I thought it would take, my business plan said it would take three to five years. It took 15 years to sell. So it took a lot longer. Everybody says it's going to take three times as long, three times as hard, and three times as much. That was probably accurate for me, but I was learning as I went. So, And then you stayed on once you sold. I did. So the contract, and, and this is typical of most big acquisitions, is that we agree to stay on for two or three years. I stayed on for three years, and then I was asked to go ahead and just stay on, which I did for two more years. And I'm glad I did because I can, I can say that I've been a CEO in a multi-billion dollar enterprise, which is cool. And I learned things that we were striving to achieve. But it was a, it was a national company, a federal contractor, and, and it was not the same as being an entrepreneur when you shift from building a company to becoming a very institutionalized organization. We were one of, I think they had over 20,000 employees. So it, it, the dynamic changed fairly quickly. No kidding. And then uh, tell us about your consulting company now. So the, the fun thing in starting a company is that we make just about, or at least I did, make just about every mistake you can possibly make. And so what that means for my clients is that I learn from my mistakes. And so whether it was regulatory, whether it was shareholder issues, whether it was employee issues... Things that, that we see because we've done it, but other startups, other entrepreneurs, if they have not yet you know, hit some of those obstacles, they don't even know there's a red flag. They don't even know that they're treading into danger zone. And so what I get to do is I get to sit down, serve on board, sit with other CEOs, some startup, some very institutionalized, and help them navigate some of the, the challenges that they're going to face and, and maybe... Let them learn from my experience. Yeah. And tell us the website. The website is janeandcraig.com. Great. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, the name of this show is Leadership and People and, and definitely talking about, you know, uh, Corporate Alliance, who we're obviously both a part of the C4 group. And um, when you think about the role of, you know, doing good work plus knowing the right people to do that good work with, how have you seen networks help you grow the businesses you grew? Or networking I, or building yeah, relationships? Yeah, so I got involved with Corporate Alliance probably about halfway into building my company from start to acquisition. It was a game changer for me. It literally was a game changer. In fact, I think that I was very purpose-driven, and so I would have sold the company and I would have done well. 
but I learned so much as a result of Corporate Alliance and the people that I met really for the same reason I'm consulting today is I met from other, I learned from other people's relationships. I, I learned from their mistakes. I learned from their creativity, their innovation. So from almost the beginning of when I joined Corporate Alliance, the vendors all became fellow Corporate Alliance vendors. My coaches, my mentors became Corporate Alliance members. And so Corporate Alliance, even the books that I read were life changers for me. So I, I did not have the benefit of a business degree. I, I didn't have accounting classes, and yet I'm CEOing a highly regulated financial institution. I was able to surround myself and benefit and be encouraged by other leaders. So it, it has been huge for me. Yeah. Um, thinking about growing your own talent, you know, leadership and people inside your organizations, um, I think most of us who have started something or run things, we have all these theories about how it's going to go, and then, then you start working with real people, right? And you're like, man, this was different when I was the peer. <laughs> now as the boss, sometimes it's not exactly as you imagined. What are some of the things that you latched onto that kind of became your way of growing leadership in, in your people? One of the things that I am probably most proud of in building my company is that I started, I didn't have any money. You know, I'm a single mom with a two-year-old, and, and so I had to start. I had to start quickly, and so I hired my babysitter. I hired my karate teacher. I hired the guy that flipped burgers at McDonald's to build our software, and so we hired really talented young people and then allowed them to grow, and, and today's CEO of that family of companies, uh, when he started working for me, he was like... 19 years old, no college degree, and yet today he's the CEO of a multi-multi-million dollar company. And so I'm super proud of that. So I guess if you're saying what what would be one of my... Um, or what are principles that the rest of us could learn from them? Okay. You know, one thing that I found is you got to give people, you got to give people enough rope, but not so much to hang themselves. I don't know, what, what, yeah. whatever your version is. Well... I've surrounded my entire career, even even what I'm doing now, I've surrounded myself with young people that are creative, that that certainly understand technology better than I do, that have a lot to prove, that um, like to be taught, that want to be given the opportunities. And so I think as you mature, you, you have to have the CPAs, you have to have the lawyers, you have to have those skilled people. But... My story is we built a multi-million dollar company with a lot of young people, some that didn't have high school diplomas, and grew into amazing leaders. And so I think my job was to invest in them and then to lead them. And so I, I believe in a servant leadership. I believe in, a, in being an example uh, and sometimes demanding, but, but teaching throughout the whole process. When you think about that balance... Um, you know, sometimes setting the bar, you know, or letting people know, hey, this isn't getting the job done. But from a, you know, a servant leadership type of attitude, how do you walk that balance being there? How do you, how do you balance the, if I don't say, if I don't say anything, I'm letting the company down. If I indulge in feelings of blame, I'm probably not being the great leader. How do you, how do you walk the line in between? Well, it's easier when you're not desperate. So in my first many years, if, if we didn't make enough money, my employees couldn't get paid, and certainly I couldn't get paid, right? And so 
I, I was pretty straightforward. I, I do believe in encouraging and not talking down. I believe that, that our employees have a lot to offer. I believe as leaders, it's our job to cast the vision, to allow our employees to help execute, and then, and then we tweak it, and we guide it, and we correct, and we point out why so that we, we learn through every experience that we, we t- take on. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt, as founder of the company, at the end of the day, it fell on me. But I really relied on my employees. I really relied on them. And, and, and I think most of them knew that. If they didn't, they didn't stay. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, so. You know, I think there's so many opportunities for leaders to sometimes feel special like we're we're a big deal because staff know that we pay the paycheck or especially if you start getting some financial results sometimes people start to treat us different so you know like for me when I was a young when I first became a CEO and I'm you know 28 years old running a private equity fund and I kind of wanted if I'm honest about it now I kind of wanted to be a big deal you know I wanted to prove all those high school jocks that didn't think I mattered that I matter right and um, there's a you can get away with a lot of more self-focused behaviors when you're wealthy and in charge. And unfortunately, I had some hard lessons to learn about humility, you know. Um, for somebody who wants to humble themselves instead of be humbled by life, yeah. any, any advice of how to take a look in the mirror as, as a leader? That's a tough question. Most of my career, I was struggling to... to build my organization and to take it to an acquisition. I had employees that were relying on me. I had shareholders that were relying on me. I had regulatory agencies that were requiring of me. And I, I always relied on my employees. It, I, so I never had the luxury until I sold my company to, to let my guard down at all. And, and so I don't know if that was an issue for me, but but I would say this is that one thing I learned, for example, when I raised capital for my company, that the people that put the money up were the people that had been watching me. They were the people that saw the mistakes I made. They saw how I handled the mistakes I made. They saw how I treated people. They saw uh, how I navigated challenges. They saw my tenacity. And so I don't think we ever take advantage of the people that help us succeed. I just don't think we do. And and I think that we need to be willing to shift and, and self-correct. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I, You know, my, my situation was a little different from the standpoint that I was a single mom that had put everything on the line, and there just wasn't a lot of room to fail. And so I really relied on my team. I just really relied on them. And, and I, to this day, I'm very, very grateful to them. That's such a great story. Um, so I want to talk about this principle of tenacity that you brought up. Okay. You know, um, being, an entrepreneurial, it's, being an entrepreneur is cool these days, right? It is. It is very hip right now. Right? Um, and we certainly, you know, there's a, an author I really love from, Texas named Austin Cleon, um, and he talks about there's a lot of people who want the noun without being the verb, 
Mm -hmm. He's talking about being an author. Like they want to have, have they want to have a book written. <laughs> they want to be a published author. They don't necessarily want to write the book, right? right? And so um, there's a lot of folks who maybe fall in the entrepreneur category, right? Right. Um, and then and then there's you know folks that don't seem any more qualified that that do seem to have the tenacity to pay the price to take all the skin knees it takes to actually learn learn the skill set, right? Um, <clears throat> when you think about, let, let's talk about people again here, as you're selecting the kind of people you want on your team, how do you identify somebody who you think is actually going to bring that type of tenacity to the organization versus somebody who just interviews well? In, in the early years of my company, I hired everybody. I, you know, I, I hired people that I knew pe people that I knew would be loyal. I think I chose that more than anything that would represent me well, that were teachable and trainable. As my team grew, I realized that I wasn't necessarily the best interviewer. And so we had a process. I would have uh, typically maybe five employees on a hiring team, and they would vet the employees and they would get it narrowed down, and then the, it would go down to a couple employees, and then I got to make the final decision. And and and, and oftentimes I would pick up on uh, concerns that maybe the staff wouldn't, but there were other times my staff would argue that this person was worth taking a risk, and if and if they did, then I would usually acquiesce because I figured they saw something that I didn't see. That system worked really well for us. Now. Once we sold and we became a Blue Cross company, then again, it's like the federal government. It, there were assessments and testing, and, and we didn't have that same kind of control. I think it, at the end of the day, I think it really hurt us because what built a company was uh, a sense of investment, a sense of commitment, a sense of there's no ceiling to this company. And so, uh, again, I relied a whole lot on, on the team. That's great. Um, what's, <clears throat> what's another leadership principle? What's something else you feel like helped you get to where you got to? So, so I, 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 um, I have a, I mean, I have several life philosophies. Pro probably the life philosophy that, that I, sp I spent a lot of time talking about right now and and we talked about it a little bit before we got on the mic and 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 I'll just I'm not going to give the title or anything like that but I'm I'm writing a book on it right now because I, I think uh one of the keys to success is it's it's understanding where you are but it's understanding where you want to end up and and most people they don't end up with their goals or their their objectives or their dreams because they're not intentional in going after them. I look at our companies, I look at our jobs, I look at our decisions like vehicles. And, and so when I started my company, it wasn't because I dreamed of being an executive. It was that I wanted to be there for my son. I wanted to be generous with my life. I wanted to be a woman of influence that could support causes. And so I took a step back and said, what vehicle is there that will allow me to have the flexibility and the resources to be there for my son that will give me a position of influence in the community that can give me the resources that will allow me to support causes? And what is the vehicle that 
will get me there and will get me there the quickest. And so I look at our jobs and I see too many people have lost themselves in their jobs. They forget why they work. They forget why they started their companies. They, they started it to have a certain lifestyle and then they end up divorced. They end up not being there with their children. And so I always looked at my company as a vehicle to support our goals, our dreams, and our visions. And, and so when I talk to business people, I, you know, my first question is, is what's your purpose? And, and I liken it unto when we take a vacation because we get this. When we take a vacation, we always start with the end in mind, you know, with, with our destination. And then we, we, we take into consideration our purpose. Is it that I want to go to the beach and, and just chill out and relax? Is it that I want to take my kids to museums? We understand our purpose of the vacation. Then we understand our starting point, And we, we take into account our budget, our timeline, and what vehicle is the vehicle that makes sense to get there. We know if we're going to Hawaii, we need a different set of vehicles than if we're going to Disneyland. We totally get that. But we don't approach life that way. We don't approach our decisions that way. And so my advice to business people is whether it's an individual process or whether it's a big goal, a big dream, what's your purpose? What's your timeline? Now we can talk about what's the best vehicle to get you there. And then, then we're doing what Michael Gerber says we're working on instead of getting lost working in. So that's been real helpful to me. You know, it's interesting, those e-myth books from Michael Gerber mm -hmm. help. Um, sometimes in big business, people dismiss those methodologies as, oh, those are for small businesses. But when you go down the list, <laughs> many, many large businesses still have poles in yeah. exactly the same places, right? Yeah. And um, it, that systematic approach of, you know, reliably being able to provide services that exceed expectations just seems like such a recipe for success, doesn't it? His, his concept of the French fry tastes the same everywhere in the world because McDonald's provided systems and processes to their employees. I can't tell you how many CEOs, including myself, that that was a total aha moment. It was like, I think back in the early days of my company, and you were kind of darned if you did and darned if you didn't because if you were a salesperson, you'd want the French fry to be crisp and have this much salt. If you were an accounting person, you didn't want it to cook too long. And I felt so sorry for our, our customer service people because they never could have the right answers because we'd made so many exceptions. And so it's, it's a balancing act knowing, you know, how do you be uh, customer service friendly? How do you make every experience tailored and customized? and make the customer feel that they're special, while at the same time giving your employees the, the processes and the systems so the outcomes can be predictable and cost-efficient. That's a big aha moment for most of us. Well, it's funny, you know, talking about fast food is almost like a cliche thing to do in the entrepreneurial world, but yet how many of us have not mastered it? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe you're tired of hearing it, but it's not like you've done it for yeah. so many of us, right? I, I like... Uh, you know, Guy Kawasaki, guy used to work mm -hmm. for Apple, right? I, he says uh, people come to him all the time with these business ideas, and he stops them, you know, when they say, I've got a better product. He's like, yeah, listen, let's talk about hamburgers for a minute. Do you think you can cook a better hamburger than McDonald's? <laughs> if you just started with hamburger, it would be a better hamburger than McDonald's. But 
do you think you can build a better distribution system than McDonald's? Because that's what I want to hear about. Yeah. I don't want to hear about a better hamburger. I want to hear about you know, a better distribution system than them that even teenagers can't break. Yeah. Right? Well, and that may not be the cool part that we talk about as entrepreneurs. We like to talk about leadership. We like to talk about employees. We like to talk about culture. But the day that you start thinking about your exit strategy, you start thinking about profitability. You start thinking about profit margins. And, and, and by the way, if you're really going to protect your employees – you've got to give boundaries and you've got to give them processes. You've, you've got to give them something that makes them safe and able to function. So it's, it's just a part of doing business. Yeah. I, I wish I could remember who's, who I'm plagiarizing here, but there's a quote I heard of uh, clarity equals kindness, you know, when staff know what the front of the puzzle books, what the front of the puzzle box looks yeah. front of the puzzle box looks like it's, it's sure a service we can give them. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that you, you probably one of the strongest characteristics we have as a leader is for us to get our vision just as clear as we can. And, and yes, we have to be able to communicate it so that our employees and our vendors that everybody that's involved can run with it. We have to do that, but I'll take it a step further. If, if you can't write it down, it probably doesn't exist. And, and so most CPAs will tell you that probably 95% of businesses fail because they didn't take the time to write down a business plan. But, but that's, that's a key to success. It just is. It's not, a, it's not necessarily uh, you know, a, a real fun part of it, but it sure keeps you safe, and it sure addresses all of the, the issues that we're going to face. Love it. I think this is a great place to uh, stop for part one of the episode. Everybody tune back in. We're going to ask Jane Ann for some more of her uh, secrets of success. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.